Well? Something like 36? Oh, your voice. Wait, what is that anyway? Something like 36? Does that include me? I'm 37. I'm 37? I'm going to class. Why do you smell like shoe polish? Yeah, open a video store. Shut up, junkie. Like I said, I guess everyone gets curious and tries it sometimes. I never tried it. Cute cat. What's his name? Annoying customer. Noise, noise, noise. Smoking weed, smoking weed. Doing coke, drinking beers. Pack her ass, my good man. Time to kick back, drink your beers, and smoke your weed. Done poisoning the youth for today, huh? Hells yes, whatever that means. Now it's time to head over to Atlantic. Drink some beers, get ripped, and hopefully get laid. 179. Paid a good man. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast, where we, a handful of guys who are part of the Film Studies Society uh, at the University of Central Oklahoma, have continued conversing about the Good Trash movies, although it's a slight break from that this week because we have one of our host picks, but we'll get into more on that in a moment. First, we've got to do some introductions. To my left, sir, if you would introduce yourself. Frequent guest host, Caleb Masters. And uh, I'm here to talk about some Kevin Smith, man. Excellent, excellent. Batman on Batman. Across the table, if you would, sir. I am Arthur Gordon, and there's a reason we call Dalton Snowball. (laughs) 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 To my right, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and I'm not even supposed to be here today. My name is Dustin Sales, and I have a hockey game at 2 o'clock, so we got to get this show on the road, gentlemen, and uh, talk a little bit more about a movie called Clerks, if you hadn't guessed already, from our introductory music or our quippy, quirky, plucky introductions of ourselves just a few moments ago. Now, we need to warn you, dear listener, if this is the first time you're listening, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. What we do is we take the good trash, not the high art, and we break it down and we use that sort of art theory, that literary and film criticism, to apply it to these types of movies. So, we're going to spoil a bunch. Now, if you're just interested in our review, what we do is we divide the show into two parts. We're going to do a quick synopsis, and we're going to give our quick reviews of it, and that's going to take about the next ten minutes or so, and then we're going to get down and do some analysis. So, you can listen that far, hit pause, and come back, or go ahead and allow yourself to be spoiled, but don't say we didn't warn you. So let's move on and do our synopsis from the voice of the cinema. If you would, Mr. Arthur Gordon, sir. A day in the lives of two convenience clerks named Dante and Randall as they annoy customers, discuss movies, and play hockey on the store roof. You know, you could say store roof to me all day. I'm just saying. Something, something happened to me just now. It was say 36 times if you want. I'm schwitzing here. 37? <laughs> Does that include his? Uh, at least I was at number 36. <laughs> there will be jokes, dear listener. Uh, we're going to do our quick reviews. Does this movie work for you? Do you like it? Do you enjoy it? And why? Or why not? I begin with you, the chooser of the film. I chose it. The responsible party, Mr. Dalton Stewart, <laughs> if you would, sir. Well, obviously, uh, I like Clerks. Other, elsewise, I wouldn't have chose it for uh, my host pick, as Dustin alluded to. You know, normally we try to stick to cult movies and genre movies, things you wouldn't normally discuss in a film studies course. I think Clerks is one that comes up a lot, uh, because much like Pulp Fiction, it's a good bridge for people uh, to independent cinema and to art cinema. Uh, although, because of its cult following, I think it still kind of plays uh, with our, our rules. 
for the good trash genre cast. I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that in terms of the cult following of this film and the Kevin Smith in general. No? All right, we'll keep moving on. Uh, my point is, uh, on host picks, we get to break the rules. So I was like, well, this clerics is in such a gray area, we might not ever do it if we don't do it to, as a rule break. Yeah. Um, clerics is a film I like a lot. I want to say I was 14 the first time I saw it, which is probably the perfect age. I think uh, it's just, you know, it's a pretty filthy film. Uh, even by today's standards, probably much more so in I believe the phrase potty mouth finds its way in the Netflix description. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, so there you go. But uh, I think 14 is a good age. I really do. I feel like uh, your, your mind's just open enough to really intercept some of the things mm-hmm. that this film has to say. Uh, and then you need to revisit it every couple of years. And I do revisit this every few years. And every time I, I like it for different reasons. Uh, I, I like it more some years, I like it less other years, but uh, it always consistently stays in my list of some of my favorite films of all time. So, obviously, I, I enjoyed this one. You know, Great dialogue. Uh, the the acting, uh, the older I get, it, it shows that it's amateur actors more and more, mm-hmm. but I still think most pull it off pretty well. I think, considering the uh, the difficulty of some of the dialogue, I feel like most of these amateur actors really sell it. And it's got a great, a great visual look. I mean, uh, one that came out of necessity... Just you know, pure cheapness and uh, not really knowing how to do anything but stick a camera on a tripod. Uh, but I feel like the film looks great. It's funny and it has a lot to say. So, what do you want? Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Dollar. We know where you're coming from. Now we want to know where Mr. Caleb Masters is coming from. So, Mr. Caleb Masters here. He uh, was a contractor on the movie, and I'm an innocent bystander. That is the stance I'm taking on this movie. I bet they brought independent contractors in on that thing. Plumbers, aluminum siders, roofers. And not just Imperials, is that what you're getting at? Exactly. In order to get it built quickly and quietly, they'd hire anybody that can do the job. Think the average stormtrooper knows how to install a toilet main? All they know is killing in white uniforms. Unlike Dalton, I didn't see this one until college, so about uh, three years ago. Uh, I got it. I, me and Kevin Smith hit it off when he started doing his Fat Man on B- Batman podcast mm-hmm. two years ago. I had seen a couple of his movies, uh, most notably um, Dogma. Which I, I still is probably my favorite movie. It's the first one I ever saw. It's the one I continue to go back to the most. But anyway, so yeah, I didn't until later. Uh, so I watched this and going back to his roots, and I gotta say, it's not one of my favorite movies he's done, but I think it is at an absolute at it is an absolute necessity if you're wanting to look at the golden the emergence of indie filmmaking as a legitimate um, film as legitimate film. This is right before. Uh, independent films exploded at film festivals. Uh, this is this was back in the day when you might get 30 films at a film festival as opposed to 3,000 submissions. So this movie kind of it was the beginning of something of uh, kind of a democratization. Democratization, for, for yes. YouTube democratization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, this is back when the guy people could finally buy some cameras. It 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 was that point where film stock had become cheap enough where anyone who had the desire to was interested in making a film could make a film, yes. but we weren't to the point where some fat girl in Minnesota, as right. I believe Warren Scorsese once said, or no, uh, Francis Ford Coppola once said, uh, talking about what he thought the future of film would look like very accurately, right. anyone can literally make a movie at any given second yes. of the day. And it's kind of it's kind of about that bridge period, yes, that pre uh, pre digital. Yeah, it's 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 a pre two thousands era. We're looking at the nineties, so I think it's a really interesting film to study uh, from a historical standpoint in that sense. And I think it's also uh, something to look at if you want if you want to understand the culture Kevin Smith comes from because uh, he was making a movie about his life when he made this movie. So oh, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting points. So in that instance, it's a shelf. It's not a movie that I would say is necessarily one of my favorites, but I do like it, and there's a lot of value there. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. We now know from whence you come. 
all away across the table, the most hipster of all of us. If you would, sir, Mr. Arthur Gordon, tell us, does this movie work for you? I saw Clerks before it was cool, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I saw Clerks, uh, I guess I was probably in this middle ground between Dalton and Caleb. I saw it when I was in high school, probably about 17. Uh, One of my best friends, she, uh, she was telling me about Kevin Smith and these movies and how funny they were. And so she eventually she let me borrow all of them. And it was during that time that I got familiar with uh, Kevin Smith and the Jersey Trilogy and the Viewers Universe. And of those first five films, I say for me, Chasing Amy's my favorite, but Clerks, Clerks stands up there. But it was a thumbs up then and it's a thumbs up now. For me, it was relevant then because I didn't know what I was going to do out of high school. It's a movie that's still relevant to me because I'm still trying to figure out what, what life's about and where to go from here. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well, Dustin, what do you think about this film? You know, i got to say this. I've seen it only recently as a graduate student in a cinema studies program. The first time I saw it was probably 18 months ago, maybe. As part of a film studies course. No, just just because I knew of it. Because it kept coming up. It comes up. I mean, Kevin Smith comes up, and the fat man on Batman had come around. I had seen Dogman, really enjoyed it. I'd seen Red State, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, all right. I mean, the first movie is a big deal a lot of times with directors, you know, Breathless with Godard and uh, Truffaut's 400 Blows, those kind of movies. I'm like, okay, I need to check this thing out. So I'm checking out this movie. I, I see why it got him somewhere, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I'm purely I'm talking in kind of review stars kind of thing, although I'm going to resist the urge to give this film stars. It really is, as Dalton mentioned earlier, obviously amateur actors, obviously production values are low, which are things I don't mind. And also, there is, you know, just just this kind of laziness with the camera. And probably not laziness, it's probably just a lack of experience yeah. with, with motion and movement and those sort of things. And uh, and then again, you know, I think the performances really are, are one of the things that really kind of uh, slow the, the, the pace of the film down. Uh, there are moments in there that are kind of brilliant. Uh, there are there are there are lines in there that are really really funny, but honestly, this is this is not a movie I love. So what you're saying is it's it's one of those films that engages you on an intellectual level, but not so much on a personal. level. Not really, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that's fair. I mean, there there are other first films that that are not shiny. There are there are really kind of guerrilla rugged indie movies. Uh, Jim Jarmusch may come up later in our discussion, and he does the same sorts of movies, and I really love those. And there, there, there's a real disconnect there. But I, I see it as a, as a good first effort, as but not a great first effort. Certainly not the best first effort I've ever seen. Certainly not the best low budget film I've ever seen. And certainly not the best amateur acted film I've ever seen. But I, I, I see. Okay, yeah. So no wonder this guy got enough money to make another movie. <laughs> That's what I see in this movie. And then a career began from that. And I think it's it's one of those films, like a lot of films that come up on this uh, show when it is a film that we're revisiting, like uh, Stargate for Dustin, Teen Wolf for Arthur, you you know, your mileage may vary based on what point you're at in your life when yeah. you see it. Yeah. I think if I see Clerks at 23, I, I don't like it as much. Yeah. Because I don't like it as much as I did when I was 14, but there are things about it. I look back on who I was when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is one of those films uh, I always rate as one of the films that said, this is how I got into film. Mm. And I think that is why I have the reaction to it I do. Now let me say something positive. Go, go because ahead. Because 1994, I was alive and kicking and very much a part of the culture. And I gotta say, the return to some of those... He, bits, was, he was 14 when he came out. Yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, that movie has some beautiful, uh, just 
costuming that's not costuming. I'm sure it's actual clothing worn oh, yeah. by people mm-hmm. that just happen to own it, just like 40s Hollywood. Uh, when you weren't doing a period piece, you wore your own stuff to the yeah. set, right? Yes. And I'm sure that's the case here. And uh, some of that throwback grunge music from the 90s and that good old-fashioned butt rock makes me very, very happy. And so uh, those sort of nostalgic uh, bits made me happy. And I, I, I see this movie, and I want to say this to the dear listener, because some of our dear listeners are interested in making film. We got a couple. Have ha- ha- some direction that way. And of course, digital's kind of changed the world. But uh, something uh, Quentin Tarantino once said, which was, we need to um, encourage people to, just to start making stuff. And if that means you've got to just put down the coin and buy the film, if you want to use film, as Kevin Smith did, and stick it in your fridge, so that every day when you're getting beer out, or whatever it is that you drink, you're seeing the reminder, I need to get it back and watch and make my movie. I, I think this movie teaches you that. If nothing else, you can make a movie if you have the drive, the inspiration, and the artistry. It may be an only one and done, and it may be something that goes on to a career, but I think the best filmmakers make every movie like it's like their last movie. So, I double dog dare you to make one if you're thinking about it. Alright gang, well thank you so much for your quick reviews. Now we kind of know where we're all coming from. We have generally positive feelings towards the movie, although I may be a little more ambivalent than the rest. So if you are doing the pausey pause thing to avoid the spoily spoilage, uh, this is your warning. Now we're going to move in and do some analysis. We're going to talk about what happens in the movie. The jokes will be told. The moments will be spoilt. Um, with a T, not an ED, because we're British today. Now, so... I move to my left and ask Mr. Caleb Masters, if you would, sir, what analysis bring you? Okay, so I am looking at this movie as uh, we're following uh, Dante. He's going to work. He gets, it's Dante, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gets called into work. Into the inferno, if you will. He doesn't want... Oh. And he's called into work. He doesn't want to, but he doesn't have a choice. Uh, he is just another worker in the system, and he's got a... Keep the system running. He's got to go. He's got to go in and run the store, even though it's a store that apparently nobody actually visits most of the time. He's got to go in, make sure they make some money. Aside from four-year-old girls who want to buy cigarettes. So I'm looking at this movie as uh, got some Marxist Marxist commentary here. What is he doing? He's working. He's stuck in this job. What does he actually do by the time the movie is done to get out of his say crappy job that he constantly complains about hating? Nothing. You want to know why? Because he's distracted. He's distracted by the gu- the gum salesman who is who is ta- taking advantage of his complacency to move up himself. So things like gum salesman, pop, random pop culture uh, conversations, several of them, um, pornography, movies, tabloid aliens that That's what I call it Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> tabloids, which claim that Warner Brothers has been taken over by aliens. You're looking at. A man who is too distracted by all these things that the man has put in his place. He cannot see further than what's right in front of him. He can't realize that his real problem is he's stuck in a job he doesn't want. And his girlfriend brings us up, brings us along and says, I'm trying to get you out of here. We're trying to get you a job. But Dante just doesn't see very far because he, he lets himself be bogged down by all these things the man has put in place. And the man could be a lot of people in this movie. Yeah, I'd like to think of it as his boss. Uh, his employer, but you could look at it on a macro level where we're looking at America. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are a lot of people who are stuck in jobs like this, and they they they're so busy trying to keep up the day to day that they can't ever see the bigger picture. They can't get out because distractions, kids, circumstances. That's the man keeping them down. Coming from Marsha's perspective, of course. So that's what I got. And I'll live to 
thank you, Caleb Masters. I appreciate that analysis, and I think uh, Marks may rear his bearded head a few more times in the course of this show. I move on to the bearded host, Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. Well, the first question I had to answer was, what does the RST video Quick Stop Shopping Center represent? Uh, for our characters, specifically Dante, the center serves as a hub for his life. It dictates everything about him, it is where his friends come and commune with him, and it's where his enemies, the customers, find him at his most vulnerable state. Uh, more importantly for this greeting of the film, it serves as Dante's subconscious mind. The Quick Stop serves as this place where Dante can work through situations. Everything that takes place at the store is at times more realistic and open while at the same time surreal and symbolic. The thing that turned me on to this is the dialogue of the film between the main characters, uh, which is more articulate than it should be for a bunch of slackers and college dropouts. It is expected from the Veronica and Caitlin, but not Dante and Randall. Uh, the many situations Dante encounters uh, reflects his life and his purpose, and at times his greatest fears. In this view, Randall begins to fill the role of Dante's id. So what you're doing, Arthur, if I'm guessing, is you're going to give a Freudian reading here, right? Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Maybe, okay. Maybe so, happening. All right, cool. I got you. I got you. Uh... Randall uh, is the only one that acts up purely out of impulse and instinct. Uh, from here we see that Veronica uh, serves the role of superego, the moral center and place of checks and balances on the opposite side of the spectrum that is right. from Randall's id. Uh, Dante himself represents the ego, the base middle ground which finds a dialectic balance between the desire of the id and the discipline of the superego. As a quick aside, I would further argue that not only does Dante serve as his own ego within the film, uh, but he is also a visually realized stand-in for the viewer's ego. Uh, for the slackers who watched this film and didn't know where life was taking them. And obviously it's Kevin Smith's ego. Um, no doubt. You're right on, man. Keep going. That's Kevin great. Kevin Smith, the college dropout. Kevin Smith, the man who worked at the real quick stop where this movie is filmed and saw these people on a day-to-day basis wondering where his life was going to go when he dropped out of film school and what can he do to make this movie. Mm. Uh, but back to my point. Uh, this idea of id, ego, and superego drives the film. By the end of the film, Randall is still impulsive, and Veronica still works by this code. Uh, Dante hasn't quite figured out how to balance the themes and ideals that they both present to him. Uh, he knows he doesn't want to be stuck in the workforce forever, but he doesn't buy into Veronica's ideas of going back to school. Likewise, he doesn't like being crapped on by customers or his boss, uh, but he can't channel enough of Randall to stand up for himself. Opportunities arise throughout the film that would be perfect for him to establish himself as a leader, but he can't quite come through with it. When he does try to establish himself in any way, he overreacts. Uh, we see this with Veronica and the revelations of her sexual history. Mm. It is also interesting to note that any time Dante tries to stray uh, from the quicksop, he is seemingly punished. He tries to establish himself and piss on authority by closing the store to play hockey and be a macho man when he challenges the annoyed customer to play him, uh, at, which po- at which point they lose their ball and they can no longer play. Uh, the second time he's punished is when he strikes out to the funeral at Randall's urging. They once again close the store. Uh, but the whole thing ends in a fiasco after a few minutes, and Dante has to make his escape in going back to the quick stop. It is here that the ego has to begin to recognize that it can't act upon the extreme impulses uh, that the id relies on for survival. We also never see the ego try to act in a manner compliant with the superego until the end of the film when Dante realizes he loves Veronica and that he must approach the situation as a grown-up. Uh, this comes after a little push from another character, but I'll get there in a sec. Uh, the other characters we meet, Caitlin, Snowball, Jay, and the dead man in the bathroom, <laughs> all represent the eventual outcome of Dante's current path. Caitlin, obviously the unattainable. He doesn't understand why he wants her, but it may have something to do with the idea of this hunt and her belonging fully to him. She may be an obscure object of desire. I'm just saying. And this is realized in the climax of her story arc with Dante that she has come willingly to lay herself at his feet 
willing to throw away this relationship with the Asian design major. Sang, the past tense of sing. Mm-hmm. And even in that moment, she still has sex with another man, fully realizing that she can never fully be Dante's. Not, not only does she have sex with a dead man, she has sex with a, da- a dead man before she would have sex with Dante, which, again, she doesn't do intentionally, no. but I think it speaks to what you're talking about and speaks to their relationship in the film. And I gotta say, one of the greatest phallic gag props of all time is that sheet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't oh, pay yeah. attention and you'll, you'll miss it if you yeah. don't pay attention. It's so funny. Yeah. Snowball represents the eventual outcome of his relationship with Veronica. Okay. Because if they do break up and don't get back together, Dante becomes just another number. He is number 37, uh. and that's what his identity becomes. Now, Jay represents the ultimate end of the line for a college dropout. He's the loser slinging dope outside of the local store with no purpose other than to drink beer, smoke weed, and hopefully get laid. Dante recognizes this as he turns down the opportunity to party with Jay and Bob because he knows that's not what he wants to be. And finally, the dead man in the bathroom is the ultimate fear of Dante. The fear of growing old, being forgotten, and then dying alone and being screwed by the memory of the life he could have had with Caitlin or Veronica. Well, not only does he die, he dies in the quick stop. Uh, Dante the Ego can't strike a balance between the id and the superego that is his fate. But someone helps him realize this and helps him to see the balance as Silent Bob finally speaks up as the voice of reason, uh, capital V, capital R, uh, within the subconscious. He is the one that turns on the light bulb of epiphany within the ego, and it is through his sage advice that Dante realizes the truth and wakes up to his place in life. There's a lot of fine-looking women out there, man. Not all of them bring you lasagna. Most of them will just cheat on you. Thank you, Arthur Gordon. I love that reading. I, I think that Freudian architecture or structure of the psyche is totally present there and is not something I observed at all. So, well done on you, sir. I appreciate didn't that. Didn't pick up on it a bit. I thought that, it was great. That's, that, that, is very, that is really, really good. I feel very happy about that. <laughs> Dalton Stewart, you got some work to do, brother. I got a couple things to say. Um, first of all, I want to dive a little bit deeper into what Caleb had to say about Marxism uh, in this film as a Marxist as a There Marxist is a text. clear Marxist reading. I'd clearly. Say. clearly. Uh, but what I want to talk more about is the evolution of Marxism a little bit. Less... <laughs> you following me so far? I'm so, with you, comrade. So when Karl, when, Karl, when Karl Marx puts down the Communist Manifesto, right, what he's talking about is what we today would call blue-collar labor, right? He's talking about working in factories, manufacturing... But that doesn't apply to clerks, and that doesn't really apply to um, what we call in sociology conflict theory, this idea that all of social interaction is based on the fight for resources. And that doesn't really apply to America today. What we would more call these jobs is white-collar jobs, right? Jobs where you're pushing buttons all day. As, as Randall says, a monkey could do your job. So what we're talking about here is... So you're not welding rivets, you're exactly. not putting car doors It's on. not skilled labor. Correct. It, it's unskilled. It's de-skilled, I think Marx might say later. Yeah. And what Marx was talking about, Marx was often talking about, was uh, today we look at as skilled labor. He saw it as, as not being skilled labor because it wasn't craftsmanship. You know, you weren't uh, doing woodwork, you weren't doing pottery, you weren't tilling the field. Um, you were you know, on an assembly line. Today we look at that as skilled labor because those are jobs that are not, that take some training. Uh, you can work a quick, learn to work a quick stop in about 20 minutes. Uh, so we're seeing here is what it is called wage slavery. These white collar jobs that you get stuck in that you can't get out of because they're built to keep you in them. Uh, much like Arthur talked about, uh, Dante can't get out 
of the quick stop because something keeps pulling him back. Every time he, he tries to use his id to lash out, he gets pulled back in. He lacks mobility. Precisely. Yeah. And that he lacks the upward mobility uh, to get out of the quick stop. He makes enough money to live on, but he doesn't make enough money to move out of his mom's house, go back to college, get you know, quit his job and look for a better job. He's stuck in the quick stop. It keeps him in there. Uh, and it, it brings to mind this idea of how much choice do we ever really have in wage slavery? Again, this idea, and, and again, uh, Dante actually mentions this by name in the film. He says, I get paid slave wages. Mm-hmm. Well, wage slavery is the idea that, uh, well, you're getting paid, but you're getting paid just enough to live and not enough to get out of where you are. You have to have the security of that continual paycheck, and so there you're held in that position and unable to escape. Think, think of the, the working poor and the lower class, the people uh, in, in society who, who do the jobs that, quote, no one wants to do. Actually, think of the people you pay for your gas. There you go. So what we see here is that Dante can't move on from this job. He is literally stuck here. Now, you could say this has to do with Dante's inability to initiate change in his life, which he talks about. But you could say that he lacks the resources to do so, and I think the film might be hinting at that uh, unintentionally, maybe, intentionally, maybe. But I think it does still address it to some extent. But when you look at the film, you realize that Dante, not only is Dante not supposed to be there today, he's probably not supposed to be there at all, and none of us are. Um, and, And you start to see these other reminders in the film that, yeah, he's not supposed to be there, but he really can't get out. They talk about uh, the construction of the second Death Star and Return of the Jedi, and the idea that well, you know, a contractor thinks with his brain, uh, not his wallet, his heart, not his wallet. Does he though? Does he really have a choice at the end of the day what jobs he takes? If it's you know taking a job that might be dangerous, is the difference between feeding his family or not? Do you really get to not go in when the boss calls you in if you think you might get fired if you don't go in? Mm-hmm. What? How much choice? Do Dante and Randall really have? And I think that Return of the Jedi um, discourse is a conversation about that. Is 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 that even though uh, Randall is reading it that they didn't have to be there, and the uh, random the uh, left wing uh, rebels, yeah, well, and then the random left wing rebel uh, 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 roofer that shows up and says what he says, uh, works in a counterpoint, I think, to what Dante's situation is. Because Dante is there because he doesn't want to be there. And I think that contrast is totally present. And I, again, we're, yeah, we're seeing this dialogue at these different points of view. It's a matter of, can Dante leave or can he not leave? Can he leave and chooses not to leave? Or does he not leave because he can't leave? Is he stuck here because of wage slavery? I don't think he is. I think the, con- the film's having a conversation with wage slavery. But I think what we get to... Uh, as we dig into the film, is Dante's not really stuck here. Dante is a, a middle-class white kid of some resources, it seems like, in the film. He's got a car. He's got a very nice car. Yeah. I mean, he, he's got glasses. You know, he dresses okay. He's got a sweater. That 90s my sweater. My point, yeah. My point is, Dante is not poor, right? True. He's probably lower middle class. He lives with his mother, yes. Mm-hmm. But he's not destitute. He knows people that are in college. He went to college himself. Mm-hmm. Dante has put himself in this situation where we're seeing Dante is just lashing out with this flaccid male rage, if you will. This that is a excellent description of exactly what he's doing. It's just it's just blind impotence that signif- it's sound and fury signifying nothing. Dante is angry for at himself, and he claims, "I'm angry at the boss. I'm angry at the savages in this town, the jam gum, the locks." Really, he's just pissed off of himself that he won't as he says later on, 
choose to initiate change in his life. He has allowed himself self to become stuck here. When he is probably of the only class that gets to choose to leave these sorts of jobs is the white college kid who does this job to help pay for school and then moves on. And there is a class of people that is stuck in these jobs forever. And that is real wage slavery. And I think uh, there might be a conversation uh, of white privilege happening in this film. Again, maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally. I don't know. I don't think it really matters. But what I think this all comes back to is the original ending of Clerks. Are you guys familiar with the original ending of Clerks? I am not. The man in the hoodie that comes in and asks what the name of the cat is and is told, annoying customer, calls them assholes and leaves. He comes back at the end of the night, robs the quick stop, and shoots Dante. Dante dies in the quick stop. Holy smokes. What? That is the original ending of Clerks. I like that movie so much better. (laughs) It's a really... Powerful ending, and I it got cut because when it went to a Miramax, when Miramax picked it up, it got cut. But I think that really becomes the period ending note, definitive declarative statement of this film. Mm, yes, you might be stuck here. You might have stuck yourself here, but if you don't get out, you will die here. Mm. Period. I like that reading, guys. I am so impressed around this table to be with you, gentlemen. I, I thank you so much for bringing up Marx, uh, both you and Dalton, uh, both you, I'm pointing at Caleb, this is a auditory, aural medium, not a visual medium, isn't it? And uh, thank you for bringing up Freud. What I want to do now uh, with my analysis is I want to bring Freud and Marx together and have an ugly, bearded, cigar-smoking baby. And I really want to talk about why this movie got made. I want to talk, actually I want to bring auteur theory into this whole idea. And I want to talk about Freud's idea of uh, the idea of civilization as discontents. I think I brought up the book before, where there's this idea that we have all these impulses and desires, these id-type impulses, these libidinal, which does not always only mean sexual impulses, that uh, somehow drive us, and we have to repress those. We have to not go ahead and act upon those. And Freud's argument is that if we were to act on all of our impulses, there would be no civilization, because we'd be all humping in the bushes. And to bring it back to, uh, to kind of bridge you know, my reading with your reading, as Randall says, position does not dictate behavior. I think that's fair. I think there is a sort of anarchic impulse in there. But I want to focus more on Dante. Mm-hmm. And Dante as Cypher for Kevin Smith. And, of course, I only, seen, I only had seen the version of the film in which Dante lives. And I think Dante goes on and makes a movie, is what I want to say. Because I think Dante's Kevin Smith. Because I think Kevin Smith was stuck in a convenience store in a situation of wage slavery, yeah. and he has all of this repressed energy that he'd like to expend in some other way. Flaccid male rage. This if flaccid you will. male rage, and he finally gets a hard on and makes a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly what happens. And he makes this movie that actually begins to move some art forward. The reason why we have novels is because we can't have sex all the time. Because if we could have sex all the time, no one would bother writing. I never wrote a book because I was too busy kissing girls. And, and well, exactly, and that and that's part of Freud's understanding of where society is now. What Smith does with it is not just this whole thing. I want to stay at home, smoke a lot of pot, and masturbate to porn. It's also this idea that um, there is this wage slavery that dominates us. That is part of that source of repression that keeps us from being able to do what we want. Because what Dante wants to do is sleep in that day. 
and then go play his hockey game. And he has all of that pent-up, flaccid rage that he can channel in some way in order to create something. Kevin Smith, in the same way, does exactly that sort of idea that Freud's picking up on, using concepts, again, of alienation and of uh, wage slavery from Marx, to say, this is where I can begin to uh, stop up the energy so that I can build up the necessary pressure by which the artwork can come forth. And that's part of the reason, I think, as we begin to look at Kevin Smith's career, why he took this sort of uh, vacation from film. Because at the end of all of this, he can do whatever he wants. There is nothing he, that, that, that's constraining him. And so what does he want to do? He wants to smoke a lot of weed, watch a lot of porn, and masturbate. And that's kind of where Kevin Smith's career went. There is no, yeah, there is no rage being channeled when all your needs, uh, God, I want to say it was Sinbad. I really do. I want to say it was a comedian Sinbad who said, it's easier to be funny when you have to take the bus. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is because you're motivated. There's that repression that creates the creativity. Now, I don't think Freud, Freud might say repression is a good idea. I would say Mark would say that economic repression is not a good thing. And so we're not pro-repression here at the GTGC, but we are suggesting that the suffering that a person experiences in life is a really important motivator in what brings us forward in creating that work of art. And in Kevin Smith's career, we can see that that repression for him, I think, may have been almost exclusively financial. Because at the point at which that financial um, repression was no longer part of that economic repression was no longer part of his life, he takes his break and says, well, you know, people come to my house and we can talk a little bit about Batman and smoke a lot of pot with guys like Grant Morrison, which is a really funny episode. <laughs> oh, God, this stuff they talk about. It is a great episode on the fat man on Batman. It is. <laughs> but there's no motivation there. Now, he's begun to write some things about this sort of uh, change in his repression, I think. Because now he's a fat guy who wants to be attractive. So he writes this walrus sex porn film that he just filmed. And he's doing some stu- crazy Wait, stuff with what? Jesus. There's a walrus sex porn film he made. Okay. Yeah, yeah, where this guy is paid to be a walrus uh, dressed as a walrus for a rich person. So that the person can find some strange conversation. And I think, indeed, sexual satisfaction from being um, in conversation with a walrus. I forgot how, by the way, I forgot how attractive Kevin Smith was when he was young before he put on as much weight as he's put on. He's a heavy guy. He's a big guy. He's a big guy now. Uh, he wasn't as big as he is no. now. And he was no. He was cute. Yeah, he's cute. Yeah, he's cute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah absolutely. So he's a handsome hair man. And his beard. And, yeah. uh, Clerks 3, guys. Clerks 3. Well, I, I, I want to say, though, the, the, we we all these concepts come together with the auteurism, again, that authorship of Kevin Smith, and, and really where that fount of creativity came, and I think to an extent ended with Red State, which is brilliant. It's one of my favorite movies of Kevin Smith's. Um, and I'm hoping that somewhere along the way, he finds some further frustration in life. Because that's really what Dante continually experiences, is this frustration. And the movie, I think, is about Kevin Smith making movies. How he is totally frustrated. How he cannot ever get what he wants. It's the unattainable girl. It's this ridiculous job that keeps him from doing what he wants. It's this ridiculous friend who keeps kind of pulling him back versus some of the other friends like Scott Mosier who are trying to help pull him forward. And I think perhaps that 
Kevin Smith is dealing with all that frustration that leads to artistry. And what I want to, again, I, I feel like this podcast, as far as my contribution goes, is an address to you creative, you artistic uh, people out there who listen to what we do, is I want to say, channel your frustration. It ought to hack you off that you're in the situation you're in and you're not making movies. So do that and make a movie with it. And let me watch it, because I love movies, and I'm glad to be here with you all. Well, let's go ahead and do what we always do on this show when we get done talking about a film and do uh, Shelf or Trash, Elser instead. Uh, Caleb Masters, what do you think? Uh, shelf or Trash? Uh, I'll shelf it. On, uh, you know what? It's a streamer. Let's go streamer. Uh, unless you are a Kevin Smith buff, I uh, shelf it. Uh, I just say that because, again, as someone who didn't experience him until, uh, you know, in college... Like I said earlier, like it, I don't have as much personal connection as I do appreciation for the movie. So, streamer, uh, Elser and... That's a streamer. <laughs> That's something you usually have to pay extra for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Elser instead. Elser instead. You know, I didn't really think this one out too well. Let's go ahead. You know what? Go ahead and go with some of his, some, some of his other movies. Uh, I, I, I will maintain that uh, Dogma is my favorite most because it deals with ideas I'm most interested in. Uh, Clerks 2 is fantastic. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Oh my God, that so movie... Funny. That's, that is Kevin that Smith poking fun at himself and Hollywood. It is a very self-referential film. It's yeah. very funny. They they at one they point make that. they at one point they talk about Goodwill Hunting too. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. there's a scene in which they want to sauce, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, check out some of him, uh, some of his other movies and uh, check out Smodco. Check out Kevin Smith's podcast. I mean, yes, it is this man sitting on a pedestal rambling about crap, but. He makes a good talk. He makes a good talk talk show host. He knows how to he knows how to get people to tell their own stories in a really interesting light. I think he is a fun host. I think that's a good pick. Thank you for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, um, what do you say? Shelf or trash? Else for instead? Uh, this is definitely a shelf movie for me. Um, I think most of his films are. Uh, I think this will always stand as his crown jewel because without this film, there is no Jersey trilogy, and none of those other movies happen. Um, and his, I mean, obviously his career didn't happen, but this movie is vital to the rest of his filmography. And so I think there's also visible talent, something that Dustin was hitting on earlier when we first talked about the film. There's a very visible talent at work here crafting this film. And so I think it's important there. I think it's relatable for anyone coming out of high school or coming out of college. I think there's, there are things there. There are themes that, are, that resonate. Um, you know what? I think first and foremost, you watch this with Chasing Amy Mallrats. You watch that original trilogy of films and you, you, you piece those things together. And then you watch uh, you watch Clerks the Animated Series, which was a lot of fun. What? Yeah. yeah. What you know season? Yeah. Clerks the Animated no. Series. No. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. That's excellent. All via cast reprises voice actors. Yeah. I think Kevin Smith were every episode. Yeah. Where did it actually air on? I, I don't even know. I know it was like 2000. Fox so or something? It had to be something. It wasn't prime time. It wasn't ABC. I bet you that. But uh, then you pair it with our good friend Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. Huh, okay. You watch yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. You watch that one. But then you finish your night off by watching another black and white film from a first time director. You watch Jean Luc Godard's Breathless. I like those picks. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, let's say you shelf or trash. I mean, you're the picker of the film. Yeah, it's going on the shelf. Duh. I, for <laughs> a lot of the same reasons Arthur said. I think it's an essential 90s film. I think it's an essential independent film. I think it's an essential post color black and white film. I think it's essential in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it is a film that is important for film history, and it's also really fucking funny. 
if you'll you'll allow me to swear for a moment. If you'll allow me to. I think it's apropos for this film. A <laughs> um, little bit. <laughs> Elsa instead, I would say Mallrats if we're talking just a Kevin Smith movie because I think it is the most underrated Kevin Smith movie. I think it is visually dynamic. I think it is hands down. Uh, the dialogue is faster than he ever writes. It, it, he gets a great set of actors, not the least of which is Jason Lee, mm-hmm. who just deliver his Man. his his dialogue with rat-a-tat precision. That is the start of a beautiful relationship when Jason Lee shows up. It's it's amazing. Um, it's, it's really something special. And I think Mallrats is my favorite Kevin Smith movie, honestly, uh, in terms of what I think is funniest. I think the, his best one is probably Chasing Amy, mm-hmm. as it's got the most, the truest emotional core, yeah. I yeah. think. He's made a lot of good films. I think that Viewers Universe series is yeah. really good. Yeah. I even like Cop Out. It's got some funny parts. I really like Zack and Mary make a porno. Um, but yeah, I really like Mallrats. I think it's deeply underrated. I think it's, with Jersey Girl, it's often rated as his worst film, uh, before Cop Out came along. But, uh, in terms of not Kevin Smith films to recommend, I'd actually recommend I saw this week, and that's Nebraska. It is a film that was made black and white, even though it did, probably didn't have to be. Mm-hmm. It is a film from an independent filmmaker who has spent most of their career working outside of the studio system. But it is late in this filmmaker's career, as opposed to more early in this filmmaker's career. They're both, uh, excuse me. Clerks is a film about being young and friendship. Nebraska is a film about getting older and family. I think they're really interesting uh, uh, composites of one another. Uh, they're, they exist on the opposite sides of the same coin. Um, and I like them both a lot. Both are very funny. Both are, uh, Nebraska is a little bit more emotionally moving than Mallrats, and it's probably the better film um, You know, if you want to get subjective about it. But I think they're really good companion pieces. So I, I would recommend you check out 2013's Nebraska right after you finish 1994's Clerks. Mr. Dustin Sells, go ahead and wrap it up as you often do. Shelf or trash, Elster instead. Really, guys, I'm, I'm going to have to say it's a streamer at best. I okay. mean, I really just don't love this. And, and a lot of times, and I want to say this, great filmmakers. And I, I would say uh, Kevin Smith is in our list of vulgar auteurs. Yeah. Um, in that he is able to make this sort of lowbrow version of certainly uh, directorially and aesthetically and visually controlled, creative, singular vision. He totally does all those things in, in, in that sort of lowbrow kind of way. But even somebody as illustrious as the great Martin Scorsese, you know, people are not really just loving to come back to who's that knocking at my door. I like a lot of later stuff from Scorsese a lot more, and I like a lot of the later stuff from Kevin Smith a lot more. And so for me, this movie, yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think you have to know it. I don't think you have to see it. I don't, I don't think it has to happen. Uh, for If it does, I think there's value. We've had a great conversation about it, but it's not, it's not the best thing. It's not the worst thing. Now, what I would say recommend else instead of, rather, I guess, um, instead, not else, uh, to this film is uh, one of the influences of Kevin Smith. Now, I would recommend this as a kind of a side else or instead that being, uh, I keep not saying else, or not saying instead, I keep saying else, is that you ought to check out Spoilers, his uh, TV series on Hulu. That was, I, I watched a couple episodes of that, I got a kick out of it. it. It was a lot of fun, and in that I, I discovered the influence of Jim Jarmusch, and um, I think Stranger Than Paradise is a movie who does much of the same things. Black and white photography, shoestring budget, I, I'm telling you what, it costs more to rent this movie than it costs to make it. Uh, I mean, that's that's the kind of low budget we're talking about. Now, I've only seen a few Jarmusch films, uh, Jarmusch films, rather. Uh, 
Which where where in the canon is this? Nineteen eighty four. Oh god, so super, early, super early. Wow. Black and white. A guy's got an apartment. He's kind of a slacker. He's got a uh, he's he's Hungarian by descent, though he's thoroughly New Yorkian, if such a thing exists. And his Hungarian cousin is coming to visit him from the old country. And a very, very entertaining film. I think a much more thoughtful film in some ways. But I think the amateur actors are able to deliver a performance that is much more impressive. I think the cinematography is much more uh, distinct. And I think even the visual composition, just the mise-en-scene itself, it's a much better film. And I think Kevin Smith would totally agree with me on this. And I would say watch that instead. And if you really dig that and you want to do something a little bit more funny and a little bit more your time frame, then check out Clerks. And so those are my recommendations. And I am, again, just so thankful to you gentlemen uh, for the conversation that we've had so far tonight. I think this is really, really uh, thoughtful stuff. And I really, really think Clerks is a uh, important touchstone for conversation when it comes to film. And, you know, I don't know if it's good art. I don't know if it's good trash. But I think it's definitely worth the conversation. And that matters. So let's move on to our game. Dante has a really terrible job. And there are some terrible jobs in El Cine. There are some terrible jobs when you watch the movies. And we want to just talk a little bit about just our least favorite, least attractive, terrible job that you've seen in cinema. I begin with you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? Well, you know, I I thought of, almost as soon as we decided on this game, I thought of a film we did recently, and that is Dread. And do you remember, at the beginning of this film, when Dread uh, hotshots that guy... In the head, there's a robot that comes up and cleans up the blood. Yeah. Mm. Wouldn't that be awful? Yeah. Especially in Dread's universe, because people are getting shot literally every second of the day. (laughs) All the time. All the time. Uh, I also thought about the mobile infantry in Starship Troopers. (laughs) God, what a horrible job. That's got a high, 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 high casualty rate. Really, the military in any movie, uh, especially ones about noble sacrifice. But, uh... Really, the mobile inventory in Starship Troopers just gets brutally massacred. Uh, finally, uh, I would say the firefighters of any Michael Bay film. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> no doubt. This is a hard-working bunch of guys and girls. Good God Almighty. They're never... They're, you're just never going to get to go to bed. You're going to be fighting fires constantly because shit's always blowing up. I gotta say, as a former fireman myself, I would not go to work if I knew Michael Bay had anything to do with the day that I was having. (laughs) That is fair. Thank you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Caleb Masters, what are your least favorite jobs from cinema? Well, piggybacking off of the Michael Bay idea there, I went with construction workers uh, in the universes of Man of Steel, Avengers, Transformers... Independence Day. I mean, how many times did you rebuild a city? I mean, come on, they level it over and over again. I mean, they attack New York, they attack uh, Metropolis, and you know that's going to get destroyed again and again. I mean, come on. It's like if you ever watch the animated DC stuff, you're like, dear God, how many times have they rebuilt this one city? I mean, like on an episode-by-episode basis. So, yeah, construction worker. Uh, Another one I have is the people... In Star Wars, uh, A New Hope and Return of the Jedi, on the, to, to connect us to clerks here, the people who have to, to launch the green death beam with no rails. I mean, like, you know, the, the green death thing that, that, that blows up the planet? Well, that's gotta cause cancer. Yeah, oh, definitely gotta cause cancer. They're standing right next to it, covering their ears, and there's no rails. Like, what if they fall in, you know? Yeah. I mean, come on, that'd be a pretty terrible job. I mean, you better have some really great life insurance if we're gonna have a job. 
No doubt, no doubt. Thank you very, very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, let's say you. Well, surprisingly, no one else said it, uh, but first thing in mind was the, uh, the office in Office Space. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Um, next, I would hate to be an engineer on the original USS Enterprise because those red shirts spell bad luck for some reason. Uh, thirdly, uh, much uh, to the same reason that Dalton doesn't want to be a robot in dread, I would hate to be a saloon owner-operator in any Western ever. Ever. <laughs> ever. Always having to hire new piano players. Right? Man, replace my glassware because somebody keeps shooting it. Uh, finally, I mean, you can't keep a, fr- a storefront window to save your fucking life. <laughs> Someone's going to get thrown out, out of it every other day. <laughs> and finally, I love that answer. I'm sorry. That's and finally, just for Dustin, I would hate, hate, hate to teach at the school and the faculty. Dustin, what are your least favorite movie jobs? Well, you know, I mean, I also thought of the, the red-shirted uh, whatever office that may be in the Star Trek, because that obviously means it's a death. I love J.J. Abrams' callback to that, and mm-hmm. how we are going to kick us some Romulan Heine, and it doesn't go so shiny. Mr. Chekhov, you've been shadowing Mr. Scott, and you are familiar with the engineering systems of your ship. Affirmative, sir. Good. You're my new chief. I'll put on the red shirt. I kept him. I don't want to be the receptionist at the law offices of a bad guy in any action movie ever because she slash he <laughs> always gets mowed down on the way in, right? Or really just, even if they don't get shot, they get bullied. They absolutely oh, get, yeah. get picked on the entire time. That is the worst gig ever. That is the worst form of wage slavery, I think, in the cinematic universe. Because you know she slash he would rather be somewhere anywhere else but there. Moving on. Thank you, gentlemen, for all of those terrible cinematic jobs. Now, I would love to hear those cinematic jobs that you would least want to have, dear listener. And I'd also like to hear what you think of what we thought of Clerks. How you, how you understand our readings, how you think our readings are incorrect, how we're off base, how we might even perhaps be on base. Though unlikely, I'm sure. So you can do that via social media. Um, Arthur, do you know anything about social media and uh, the Good Trash Honor cast? A couple, yeah. Uh, first and foremost, if you don't have any sort of social media, you can uh, get a hold of us at uh, by emailing goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com uh, if you're in the, living in the past or under a rock. Are there uh, even more? There's another one even in addition to that? You can also find us, uh, if you are not living under a rock and you're living on top of the world, uh, you can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Good Trash Genre Cast. Uh, we do have a little bit of feedback. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Well, in regards to watching In Bruges, uh, Shane Arrington and Caleb Vesley both think it's a great film. They're really excited that we got to talk about it. Uh, in regards to the Globes, uh, Randall Bay says that Jessica Lang was robbed and that he was happy to see McConaughey win and accept with that wonderful phrase. Ah, all right, all right, all right. And that's true, true, and I love Jessica Lang, so well played. Uh, and then I posted an article about a pilot that's in development at NBC. And Brigham Cole, and I think Dustin uh, may even be, uh, is very excited about the announcement of an NBC pilot for Vertigo's John Constantine. I would love to see this happen. Holy crap, that'd be cool. Wouldn't it, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get on Facebook, you'd know about this stuff. I don't give a shit. Uh, but, yeah, that's what I've got for you all from uh, Facebook. 
Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. There is yet another media, an additional media, perhaps secondary, perhaps primary. Dalton, can you tell me more about that? My love for you is like a bird on Twitter. <laughs> Would you like to favorite me on Twitter? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. We <laughs> gotcha. You win. Uh, I didn't, Always do. I never get Dustin. I get you every once in a while. I never get him with these. I'm so happy. <laughs> I think you got him with training day, didn't you? You did. I, I did. Like training yeah. day you got I got everybody with that. That was some pro shit. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Hottercast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, the one thing we do, we don't really have anything uh, coming in from the Twitterverse today, uh, unfortunately. But a uh, friend of the show, uh, Nick Sanford. Filmmaker in front of the show, Nick Sanford, yeah. I would say, wanted to share with me his top five films of 2013. I'd love to hear Nick Sanford's top five. Well, he I mentioned to him that that might be something we might be doing in the near future, so he wanted to share that with me. Uh, so he said, we'll go from, we'll go from five to one, because that's how you do these things. Uh, number five, Prisoners. Number four, Gravity. Number three, this is a weird one, Man of Steel. Number two, The Spectacular Now. And finally, The Wolf of Wall Street. Well, you know, that's great. You know you know how near in the near future our top fives are going to be? Right now. Right freaking now. That's right. So we're going to do those things um, immediately. We're going to do our top five of 2013 because that's what's got us all fired up in pop culture. Normally we would end the show at this point with what's got us up fired up in pop culture, but the uh, the Oscar nominations went out, so it seems as good a time as any. Uh, we're all pretty much caught up on 2013 releases. No. So uh, we figured, hey, why not? Let's do it today. Today's a good day to give lists. No time like the present. <laughs> and so our format for this, as you may remember from last year's episode, is that we're going to all give our number fives. Well, actually, we're going to give our honorable mentions. We all have one. And then we're going to do our number five, four, three, two, and ones. And then we can do an additional list, either filling out the rest of the back end of our top ten or something okay. random and strange, which may be my case. So I begin with you. I guess I'll begin. Let's go around here in a clockwise fashion. Mr. Caleb Masters, what's your honorable mention for 2013? Uh, honorable mention. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and throw uh, one of these out here. It's a little movie called Rush. Ron Howard actually proved he still knows how to make a movie. There was no Angels and Demons, no Da Vinci Code. He actually, it's probably the best movie, the most notable movie he's made since 2008's Frost Nixon, and I still think this movie is better than that. It was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, sexy. Acting was top notch. Story was great. And, uh, yeah, just an all around great movie that I feel is gonna be overlooked. Looking back on 2013, I think it's gonna be overlooked because of the stiff competition this year. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I like that pick. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Arthur Gordon, your honorable mention. Uh, my honorable mention, and I'm going to go a little more commercial, a film that's not going to be overlooked uh, by audiences, and that's Catching Fire. Um, it's a sequel that allows more time in, in the Panem, and it gives uh, a little more time for art development. We've got a lot bigger budget, obviously, so we get to see some more interesting things. We also get less focus on the game itself and more on the tensions underlying the service. We get a little more storytelling, uh, some more thematic work. Uh, and for me, it's not just a great action piece. It's one of the best films of the year. Excellent, excellent. I, I, I thank you for that, and I think there's some truth to that, so I appreciate that. Mr. Belster, what do you say? I'm going to rattle off a couple. Uh, you're next, I think, a very underseen horror film. Yeah, uh, I a lot of just watched it. I am. An underseen, very funny, uh, action-y, mm-hmm. uh, but also kind of scary. It's, it's, a, it's the uh, Die Hard of horror movies. I'm, I'm in. I'll let you borrow it. I'm in. It's fun. Uh, I like the scary movies. The very funny, and really, I don't have anything to say about it other than it's hilarious. This is the end. Yeah. Uh, and finally, the most befuddling film of 2013 for me, and that's why it's an honorable mention: Spring Breakers. 
My honorable mention, gentlemen, would be The Great Gatsby. Um, I, I really like DiCaprio's performance. I like Baz Luhrmann's direction. I like all of the art direction uh, in that film. And, of course, it's being overlooked because it's what it is. Uh, they have Jay-Z and not 20s music. And, for some reason, that does not result in quality filmmaking. I don't know why, but somehow that doesn't reach into somebody's abacus formula that they have to make good movies. I will just say this, that uh, as we get in now to our proper top fives, just to caveat my own, I haven't seen a lot of the front runners. I haven't seen Gravity. I haven't seen 12 Years a Slave. I haven't seen Inside, Lewin Davis. Um, and I'm sure there are blind spots that will be revealed as we move around. But I've moved to Caleb Masters. I'd love to hear your number five in your top five. All right, so my number five this year is a little movie called Don John hit theaters in September. This is the directorial debut by none other than Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, anyway, so this movie goes uh, balls deep, if you will, and, uh, into the subject of pornography and how it kind of uh, shapes and impacts our culture. But what I find interesting about this movie is not only is it tackling... Really, it's not tackling pornography. It's actually tackling the expectations that come with that. So for men, uh, the expectation of crazy, wild, exotic sex. But then it also does a flip side of the coin uh, with with Don John's... Uh, or Sorry, with John... Uh, his... Barbara Sugarman, who is has all these crazy skewed expectations based on romantic comedies, romantic comedies and uh, what her friends say, and this whole this whole myth of uh, getting swept off your feet and having a perfect man and all that stuff. So it's a movie that, that goes explores those ideas in a way that I don't think has been done. It does so tactfully, but also doesn't shy away. It does it does not back down from its criticism. It's really funny. And it's really well acted. I, all, all around, it's a really great movie that I think, again, m- may be overlooked by, by by many this year. But it is definitely the movie we needed to tackle an issue like pornography to say, hey, hey, guys, let's look at, let's look at the real issue here. It's not necessarily just the sex-addicted culture. What's causing that? Where is it coming from? And, how, uh, furthermore, how is it impacting the culture at large? With, while also still being incredibly personal and funny and not overly dramatic. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. I like that number five pick, and you can have both. Moving on, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say is your number five? I'm going to say Blue Jasmine, uh, Woody Allen's uh, film for the year. I think it's a solid follow-up to uh, Midnight in Paris, probably more so than uh, To Run With Love, I believe is what he did last year or a couple years ago. Uh, I think Kate Blanchett deserves every award that she's going to get nominated for uh, mm-hmm. with her portrayal here. I think this, it's a solid screenplay. It's, it's well-acted. Uh, great dialogue, well-developed characters, and I don't know that it's as good as Midnight in Paris. It's, it's kind of a different monster. It's a different genre of film. It's a different type of thing. Uh, but time will reveal uh, the placement of Jasmine in in the Alan oeuvre, if you will. I like that. Thank you for that pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Bell Stewart, your number five. My number five is the only foreign language film on my top ten list, um, and that is Wong Kar Wai's The Grey Master. Uh, Wong Kar Wai being a, a very respected uh, Hong Kong See, it's not a foreign language film. It's a kung fu film. Yeah, I know. It's still a foreign language film. Though. It totally is, but there is a difference. It's an artsy kung fu film, though. So I feel like it, I, I like Crouching Tiger kind of thing, right? Exactly. Uh, probably no one, I don't think anybody at this table saw it. No. Uh, it's a film I liked a lot. Again, as we discussed on the show, I love kung fu films. Uh, this film works on a lot of levels that allowed it to get onto my list, apart from being a good kung fu film. It's very thoughtful. It's very meditative. It's it's beautiful. I mean, beautifully shot. It's just great to look at. It's got interesting themes and characters being explored. Uh, duty, honor, all that good stuff that you get out of kung fu movies typically, but from a, a well-respected auteur. 
Uh, I haven't had much exposure to Wong Kar Wai. I know he is very well respected. Uh, this was my first exposure to him. But uh, the Grandmaster, I mean, what more can I say? The story of uh, Ip Man, uh, who would go on to popularize uh, Chinese martial arts uh, throughout the world, uh, one of his most famous students being Bruce Lee. Sorry, I, I figured I should probably tell you what the film's about since so many people didn't see it. But uh, I guess that's what I got to say about my number five, The Grandmaster. Dustin Sells, what is your number five pick? My number five pick, I'm certain, will come up again later in the show, is The Wolf of Wall Street. I really like that movie a lot. Marty Pills does what he does, and it's good, and it's this great indictment of what happens in that top 1%, and I like everything about it. I am not uh, in any way troubled by the explicit content because the explicit content has a purpose. See last week's show. I, 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 I'll tell you one thing. I'm never eating a Benny Hines again. <laughs> okay, whose birthday is <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and keep moving around the table. Well, let's talk about our number four picks. We're moving to number four if you're following along at home. Mr. Caleb Masters, what do you say? I'll give him number four, which, okay, this next movie is is based on the ex- movie-going experience more so than the actual movie. Uh, so hear me out That's on this. That's fair. And, 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 the movie things. is very, yeah. very, very good. And as and if you check the Oscars at number four, Gravity, obviously the Academy agrees this is a good movie. I don't think on DVD it's going to be nearly as good as it was if you saw it in 3D, nor will it be as good as if you saw it in IMAX 3D. I don't know. There's a 90-inch uh, television at Best Buy that I think this would look pretty good on. <laughs> is it, is it going to have IMAX Send your now? gifts at goodtrashjoggercast.gmail.com. <laughs> Brought to you by Best Buy. <laughs> um so, Gravity is an incredible experience, very personal tale. Sandra Bullock does a great job. George Clooney does what he does best. He's funny. Um, visually, just just incredible movie. This is a visual masterpiece. Visual storytelling is finest. Uh, some great character development. Uh, one character's uh, struggle to survive with Sandra Bullock. Great performance. Um, it's something that can... The, the, this is the definitive 3D movie. Avatar showed the potential. He had some stuff like Life of Pi and Hugo that showed, hey... We can do even better than that. And this is the movie that says, listen guys, you want proof that you can do a movie that can only be incredible in 3D, that you have to see in 3D to understand what we're talking about. This is the movie. Uh, so maybe that's setting the bar high, but I don't think people who saw this in 2D had the same experience as people who saw it in 3D. I really don't. Mm-hmm. And so that, that will be number four because of the experience over the movie. But the movie is also great, so check it out. Number four from you, Mr. Arthur Gordon, sir. Uh, this, is where I, this is one of the edits on my list for the year. Uh, but I saw Inside Llewyn Davis over the weekend. It goes on here at number four, I think. This is charming. It's comic. It's well balanced and directed. It's you know it's another great entry into the uh, Cohen canon, if you will. It's got a great soundtrack. It evokes plenty of emotion and thought. It's definitely not a passive film. It requires a lot of attention and a lot of uh, and it requires a lot of uh, attention from the audience itself. It remains a blind spot for me. I really wish it was, I had caught up with it. Hadn't caught it yet myself. Dull Stewart, you're number four. Uh, my number four is, uh, I, I like I did last year, I tried to include at least one film from early in the year on my top ten list uh, to remind you of, of it and its existence, and that is The Place Beyond the Pines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek sent a blah blah blah's uh, follow-up to Blue Valentine, uh, reteaming here with Ryan Gosling. To, I, I called it uh, the white trash Godfather. It is a it, it is a, a great American crime drama, yes. but told from the lower class. Uh, 
it is a a flawed film to be sure. Uh, there are sequences in it that don't work as well as others, but it, you know, at nearly three hours long, it covers a lot of ground and tells a, an engaging story, an interconnected story. Uh, it, it tells the kind of stories that they honestly are often reserved for novels and how. Uh, how interconnected they are, the length of time they cover, the depth of theme they explore. It really resounded with me uh, both on a, an emotional and a, both on an emotional level and as well as just a, a pure entertainment and pure uh, pleasurable experience. I liked it a lot and uh, I really don't feel like enough saw it. So that's number four for me, The Place Beyond the Pines. Mr. Dustin Sells, what is your number four? This is where I get controversial. Um, Go ahead. And will remain controversial probably throughout the rest of my list because of my limited <laughs> viewing, but also because I don't think anybody else is going to pick this one. Number four for me is The Lone Ranger. And I'm going to say the reason why. I don't know how many at the table have seen The Lone Ranger. I haven't seen it, but that's so weird. I mean, so I, I was going to say you're in good company because Mr. Tarantino put it on his best of list. So well, I don't think you're too far out there. Mr. Tarantino is allowed to be wrong every once He's always time. got the weirdest top ten lists, and I love it. Because the Lone Ranger is fundamentally... It becomes Tonto's movie, not the Lone Ranger's movie. And the Lone Ranger is not a nice guy. He flat out forgets Tonto. He flat out forgets the racial minority around him and continues on with his life and has to go back and get him. Because the whole movie is driven by genocide funded and fueled by capitalist greed. This film is actually brilliant and has some depth. It's organized around a whole lot of set pieces. There are some plotting issues and maybe some editing issues that might go around with it. But honestly, it is probably the deepest and most brilliant major blockbuster released in 2013. And I saw a handful of those films. And I am really, really impressed, and it's the only blockbuster that makes my list this year. Caleb Masters, what is your number three pick? Uh, number three uh, has already been stated, The Wolf of Wall Street. Excellent movie. Always going to see Scorsese do a return. It's an excellent movie. Look, it is one of uh, a handful of movies that is taking on the American dream of uh, the postmodern American dream, which is now, it's not it's not raise, raise a family, have some kids, make ends meet, and have a little extra for your uh, retirement. It's Get as filthy rich as you possibly can as quick as possible, and screw everyone you can to get there. And it's kind of taking literally it. and figuratively. Am I right? Pa, pa. There we go. Uh, All right. Leonardo DiCaprio does another just incredible performance. Want to see the guy win an Oscar so bad? Martin Scorsese's direction is strong. I don't think this is necessarily his strongest performance or his strongest film in the last decade. However, it is definitely top tier. And I, I think that what the movie is getting at with its use of excess, this doesn't want you to. This movie doesn't want you to think it's dirty. It wants you to feel like it's dirty. It wants you to feel gross and to, and to understand both the fun and the destructive nature of what's going on. Because there is a little bit of fetishism in the movie. That's kind of cool. So anyway, I think it's a great movie. Moving on. Thank you for that number three pick, Mr. Caleb Master. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's your number three pick? Well, I think it's only appropriate that my number three pick is a three-way tie. Uh, but I don't believe any of these films, uh, they're all great movies, but I think they stand better as companion pieces. Um, so this is a triple bill you're recommending for number this three, is, if I understand you correctly. I am putting The Way Way Back, The Kings of Summer, and Mud all together as this mass marathon of films you should watch. Uh, these are three uh, coming-of-age films. There are about five on my list. It was a good year for the genre. Uh, way Way Back is a little more... By the book, coming of age, Kings of Summer is a little quirkier, and Mud plays it darker and more dramatic. 
but we have three different views on childhood, of growing up, and on the crap that happens in our lives and how that's handled. Um, but they all have a charm and an energy that allow them to stand at the higher end of this list. And these films are solid entries on their own, but they work well together. And I don't think they can be mentioned, mentioned uh, separately. All three are films that are probably my 15 through 20. Uh, or my, yeah, my 11 through 20, rather. I, I like them all quite a bit. Well, that's great. Why don't you tell me what your number three pick is? I love your segue. My number three is also a tie. Uh, it's less, they're less coming of age films and more I already came of age and now I realize I should have done something differently. And that is Fruitvale Station and the Spectacular Now. One looks at middle class white suburbia, the other one looks at uh, inner city um, California. Uh, One is a docudrama, one is based on a novel. So there there are a lot of overlaps here. I, I found both films just immensely emotional impact, emotionally impactful. Uh, I found them both less uh, emotionally manipulative than others did. Uh, I think they work really well as companion pieces, uh, and I just, I really connected very strongly with both films, and both um, are really breakout performances from their leads. Uh, in in the, the case of Michael B. No Jordan, and in the case of Michael B. Jordan in uh, Fruitvale Station and Miles Teller in Spectacular Now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they both turn in such yeah. great work that I, I think we'll be looking at both of these actors several years from now and saying, holy shit, this is where they took off. Uh, And you can look forward to them teaming up in 2014 with Zac Efron in a film called That Awkward Moment. That actually looks like it might be kind of funny. Excellent, excellent. I'm so glad to see The Spectacular now um, at the Dead Center Film Festival. Man, it's a great movie. I, I liked it a lot. I, it was ooh, that's some good stuff. Yeah. So, du- so Dustin, what is your number three for 2013? My number three film for 2013 is American Hustle. Um, just saw it today. I mean, that is how fresh it is to me as I was constructing the list for today's discussion. It is uh, a better remake of Goodfellas than The Wolf of Wall Street. I think The Wolf of Wall Street is very, very good, and I think it's very, very excellent in many ways. But I think um, I, I feel that I feel that Scorsese rushed to get this out before 2013 was over. And I think it could stand some more editing. Not a whole lot is needing to come out. I'm not saying this three-hour film is bloated in any way. But I'm saying if you took out another nine minutes of it with a a handful of one-second cuts here and there and one-second inserts here and there, you'd have a much different and I think a much more entertaining and lovely film. Now, I know this is somewhat controversial with the guys around us, but I really, really enjoyed American Hustle. I think it's the best Goodfellas movie since Goodfellas. Better than Casino. Okay. <laughs> Caleb Masters, what is your uh, number two film for 2013? My number two is Spike Jones with Her. This is a movie that came out uh, here in Oklahoma City last week. We've been talking about and hyping it. And I had very high expectations for this movie based on the subject matter, the director, and the, the performers in the movie. And it, it not only met them, it exceeded them, and uh, it hit me an emotional core. And uh, it's, it's kind of a really cool movie exploring, okay, what makes relationships? Uh, what makes intimacy? Because it's not necessarily, it's not just physical, making out, having sex, it's, it's deeper than that. What, what, what brings us together? What keeps us together? What makes you want to get closer to somebody? Um, so I think uh, there's a lot of really, really rich ideas that are explored here, saying, hey, what if you, can we fall in love with something that's not necessarily, I don't know, it's, it's not a person, but it's something that has all the, 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 aspect, uh, the attributes of a person. Someone who gr- also wants to grow. Someone who also wants to learn. Someone who's intrigued by you and likes you. All these different things. So, 
Really great movie. Uh, Walking Phoenix got snubbed for an Oscar nomination this year. He was excellent. Spike Jones, great, great script. And probably one of the best sci- probably the best sci-fi film that's not going to be remembered as a sci-fi film of 2013. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's your number two film for 2013? Uh, I'm going to say it's Alexander Payne's Nebraska, the follow-up to The Descendants. It's a movie, it's a powerful look at family, at failure, dreams, success, happiness. And in also in many ways, this acts as the fifth uh, coming-of-age film on my list. Uh, and this time it's a coming-of-age film for Will Forte as he tries to figure out where his life is headed and what to do. Um, I think there's a great chemistry in the cast. I think the screenplay is great. And it really just resonated with me on a personal level uh, due to the subject matter of the film. And so for that, it, it really sits pretty high on the list. Have you won a million dollars from Publishers Clearinghouse? Yeah. Okay, good. I just I figured that's where the personal relationship came. Mr. Dalton what's your number two film? My number, my number two film of 2013 is The Wolf of Wall Street. I don't think I had a more visceral experience with any film this year. I mean, and this is a year full of gigantic, explosion-packed blockbusters. And man, I, I was not more engaged with a film from start to finish. Because it just grabs you by the short hairs and does not let go for three hours. Um, not to say the least of uh, all the other things uh, my, my co-hosts have mentioned. This deconstruction of the uh, the American dream. <clears throat> this look at the debauchery of the 1% and the kind of people that are in charge of the uh, finances for the globe. And also it features this. Street just just stands above so many films that I saw this year because I've been talking about it pretty much nonstop since I saw it. It keeps coming up in conversations I'm having, and that's why it keeps it would dip down in my top ten list and keep coming back up. And I couldn't place it any lower than second because of how often it has come up just in conversation. It it, it is an important film for 2013 because people can't stop talking about it, whether they hated it or they loved it. Uh, it's a great film. It totally is. And I thank you for that. Uh, I move on to my uh, number two film of 2013, which is a documentary. It is called The Act of Killing. And uh, it's a film um, that none of you have seen, probably. I really wanted to. It's an Indonesian film. It, it, it is about the uh, politicide of all the communists <laughs> and uh, what happens when they begin to confess their crimes, how they begin to recreate their crimes. It is all about the subjectivity of memory. It is also about these sort of recreations that they put together themselves and all these surreal, fantastic imaginations. And it begins to deal with the uh, issue of guilt and innocence and what's going on in a nation at any given moment. And I find that to be really, really fascinating. And I, it is actually a nominee uh, for a Best Documentary. And I truly hope it wins. It's one of the best movies I saw all year. I love that movie a lot. Well, I guess that brings us to uh, the finish line. You know, the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Mr. Caleb Masters, what's your number one film of 2013? Uh, my number one that was a really big surprise to me on my own when I started making my list, and that is uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, now... The reason being, this is a movie when I saw it, I didn't really feel the impact. And I, in fact, I sat on this movie for about a month because I had an early press screener at the very beginning of December uh, before I made my top ten list. And uh, what, what kept what kept this movie kept coming back up in my mind, okay, 
what is it about this movie that I keep thinking about that keeps bringing? And I just tell you know, uh, it's the the character of Lewin Davis is in this interesting point in his life where he's trying to figure out. Uh, what to do with his life. He's trying to figure out how to turn his passion into something successful. He's trying to be a good person, albeit failing horribly and miserably. And um, I, I I don't think I'm a bad person, but I think in a lot of ways my uh, the point in my life I'm in is, is similar to his. So I had a very personal connection with the movie. I think the soundtrack is fantastic. Uh, every song they play, and the, the Mr. Kennedy song that, that's been nominated for a handful of awards are fun. The performances are all good. They're all funny. JT pops up in there for a few minutes. He's funny. You get uh, Garrett Hedlund, who has a really minor, albeit funny, scene. John Goodman. Performances are all great. Visually, it's incredible. It has this very whitewashed look. And it's just a movie that really is going to stick with me for years to come, uh, I think. And there's a hint of tragedy to it all. And it's uh, definitely a great Coen Brothers movie. Probably not their best. But one that I think is going to stick with me on a personal level. Because we talked about earlier in the show, seeing Clerks at a certain point in your life. You just kind of have that connection. And while I don't think this is necessarily the quote-unquote best movie of the year, it is one that I think, uh, along with her, you know, a couple of other movies this year that really connect with me on a personal level based on where I'm at in my life. So... Excellent. I like that pick for number one. Arthur Gordon, what's your number one pick? Well, gentlemen, there is only one movie that has resonated with me uh, since a Thursday night in July when I sat in the movie theater with my left hand on my... No, was it my right? I believe it was my left hand on my belt as I sat on the edge of the seat, knuckles gripped, ah... Uh, and I watched The Conjuring. Okay. Oh my goodness. You know how afraid I was just now at your NSA room 237. Holy cow. Oh. The Conjuring to me has stuck out as one of the best films of the year. Uh, it's a good I, movie. I think it's just got a great feel. The tone is perfect. It's, it's as well directed, I believe, as any of the other films on my list. I think it, it just pops. It's got a great cast. The story works. It does a great job of capturing the spirit of the decade it's set in instead of just trying to mimic it. It feels authentic to the time. James Wan, I think, just builds a perfect atmosphere. and He designs moments of terror that are not quick to leave us in peace. That's my number one pick for the year. Excellent. I like that pick a lot. That movie is solid. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Dalton Stewart, what's the number one film of 2013 in your opinion? Spike Jones is her. That's it. Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, my number one film of 2013 is one of the very few films I got to see as a member of the press. Not actually, but a uh, <laughs> member of the press who also happens to be a co-host on the show was able to hook me up with a little pass. And I got to see a little Chan Park Wook film called Stoker. Are you serious? That is the best movie this year. Wow. That I have seen. I mean, I knew you liked it, but holy shit. No, it shit. is art directed like nobody's business. The performances in this movie are brilliant. Nicole Kindling, I mean, Nicole Kidman is at her most brittle. And Mia is absolutely fantastic. It is a strange combination of Psycho and my favorite Hitchcock movie, which happens to be Shadow of a Doubt, and also Bram Stoker's Dracula, more like that which found in the uh, the appropriate uh, Bela Lugosi performance. It's all over this movie. It is so smart. It is so connected to cinema. But it's not smug. It's not full of itself. It's not self-rental to this winking kind of notion. It's just doing it because it's fun and because it is an influence. And the movie is amazing. And by far the best horror film of 2013. And I'm going to say... In my opinion, best picture of 2013. I love that movie so much. So let's 
let's what? let's wrap this thing up. Let's let's just do one thing that we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna give everybody an opportunity to do a quick additional five movies they would just want to mention as recommendations. They may be five to complete their top ten. They may be five in some other category. And so, very quick, rattle off five movies. Caleb Masters. Alright, uh, I, this is just 2013 Essentials. I think the movies you see are essential from 2013. Uh, the first one being Before Midnight. Pain and Gain. Michael Bay actually made an impressive movie. Uh, Man of Steel, The Wolverine, Director's Cut specifically, and The Place Beyond the Pines. Thank you for those. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what are your five? Quickly. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, Pacific Rim, The Spectacular Now, Rush, and Gravity. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your five? Mine are my ten through six, leading back up to my five in this order. Pacific Rim, Twelve Years a Slave, The World's End, Before Midnight, and Gravity. Mine are my Dario Argento Awards for the best realize visual experience. Number five being Great Gatsby. Number four being Only God Forgives. Number four being Pacific Rim. Number two being Spring Breakers. And number one being, once again, Stoker. I think that's a brilliant movie. Again, I really liked it a lot. Thank you, gentlemen, for those recommendations. Um, I think there's a whole lot of movie watching we've recommended to the dear listener, and there's a whole lot of fun that can be had, and we would love to keep the conversation going next time uh, via the various means of social media. But before we do that, we need to tell you what we're going to watch next week, Planet of the Apes next week. Charlton Heston's original, available to you all on the Flicks of Nets. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And we're looking forward to that. We'd love to hear your feedback. What you think about what we said, what about our picks, what you think about the Oscars, what you think about anything else that's going on in cinema right now. And you can do that with most of us via Twitter. Where are you at, Mr. Caleb Masters? At BigCalKenobi91. Thank you. Where can we find you on the interwebs, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Oh, why don't you just check out ArthurGordonJr.wordpress.com and you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook from there. That sounds like a good place. Mr. Dalton Stewart, where will you be? You can find me on White Slide. Uh, never mind, that is the wrong website. You can find me on Twitter at Dahl underscore Stew. And I can also be found on Letterboxd, which is where you can find my top ten films of the year. And you'll find me tweeting at Dustin underscore Cells, S-E-L-L-S. I look forward to the conversation and your gifts. Um, please, by all means, contact us with all of those sort of things so that we can get things from you and conversation, and we can provide you with additional information, articles about the cinema and what makes it all matter. But until then, gang, we will see you next time. I'm not even supposed to be here today! She saw.
Jacan Hanso. <laughs>